Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the way beliefs shape our world. At my age, you don't forget the the pain and suffering of the women, uh, particularly the poorer and, and women of color. If you had means, they had specials. You could go to the islands for you know, a couple of overnights, and people were would think you're on vacation, and um, you could have a healthy abortion. But if you were poor, it was, you know, very different. Reverend Mansfield Caseman is 82. He's a retired clergyman who's worked as an interfaith leader for 60 years. On Saturday, May 14th, he drove to Leisure World, a senior living community in Silver Spring, Maryland, where he joined a rally at a busy intersection in front of the retirement community. The Leisure World Rally was one of 380 organized events that took place around the country. Hundreds of thousands of people of all ages marched and chanted different slogans with one clear message to the Supreme Court. Do not overturn Roe v. Wade. Reverend Caseman went to the rally because he remembers what it was like before Roe. In his early 20s, he worked to organize clergy to help women in need. At the time, he was serving at the United Church on the Green in New Haven, Connecticut. I was one of the primary organizers in New Haven in the late 60s into the early 70s. Helped to organize, not to look up the name of the group that we had that was providing you know, counsel, information, and referral at that time. Faith leaders like Reverend Caseman were very much a part of the early movement before Roe v. Wade. Many of them, faith leaders like Reverend Casey, were very much part of this early movement pushing for the legalization of abortion care. Many coming out of the civil rights movement as he did. Liberal clergymen played a major role in advancing underground access through a network called the Clergy Consultation Service. That's historian David Garrow. In 1994, he wrote Of Liberty and Sexuality, The Right to Privacy and the Making of Roe v. Wade. The best-known figure in the Clergy Consultation Service movement was a Texas-born pastor, Reverend Howard Moody, who wore a cowboy hat and pastored Judson Memorial Church in Greenwich Village. Reverend Moody and hundreds of of other clergy across the country, probably about half Protestant, half Jewish, not at all Roman Catholic, they developed a network of contacts with reliable doctors who did illegal abortions. My colleague, Arlene Carmen, she would go out to West Virginia, Pennsylvania. She'd go and pretend to be pregnant. She'd go into the doctor's office and observe the cleanliness, observe the way people who were there. Then when she was up on the table, she'd then tell him what she was about, that she represented a group of clergy who were referring women for abortions. 
these pastors put themselves forward publicly as an, an access window to tell women where and, and who to go to. And it was very successful. In the 1990s, the organization struggled to find its footing. The anti-abortion movement was using different strategies and language, including organizing within denominations to rescind support for the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights. As a result, it lost many members. And to Reverend Caseman, that's a sign of a shift in the public discourse. It's interesting how pro-life has been taken over by those that are against abortion. I mean, I've considered myself to be pro-life all along. But that has to include the mother. Over the last two decades, the group evolved, including a name change and new logo. Our car became RCRC, the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. And their network, not as strong as it was in its heyday, changed its organizing style. It was not only a shift in the public discourse, faith leaders began to recede from the front lines advocating for abortion care. Oh my God, yeah, we're taking such a giant step uh, backward. And what's most upsetting to me is that not just our country, but the faith community on the whole are taking a back seat. You know, they seem to be more concerned with being considered uh, political rather than fundamentally moral and taking a, a position on it. Reverend Mansfield is no longer an active member of the group. So to learn more about where the organization is heading, I spoke with the leader of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice the day after the leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion. Reverend Katie Zay, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Welcome to Inspired. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. For those who have not read your book or may not be familiar with the organization, can you just introduce yourself? Yes, I am an ordained Baptist minister, and I currently serve as the CEO of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, which is a a national interfaith pro-choice organization. And I recently authored my second book called A Complicated Choice, Making Space for Grief and Healing in the Pro-Choice Movement. And I want to get to your book in a few moments, but first, let's talk about the organization. Talk a little bit about the history, just to situate how you are entering into this conversation and how your organization has been engaging for the last 40 years. In the years prior to Roe, there was a network of clergy called the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion that operated in 38 states and helped about half a million people who needed access to safe abortion get access to it when when it was illegal. So they would make sure that there were providers who were caring, who would not take advantage of people in a really difficult situation. Um, and they also were strategic about when to be public about their support for abortion, um, because they were also advocating for the legalization of abortion while also providing this kind of referral and counseling to people who needed abortions right then and there. So it was both a public and private endeavor um, and helped many, many people. And then after Roe versus Wade, the clergy who were part of that network decided that it was important for them to continue 
making sure that everybody who needed access to abortion care got it. And so a group of those clergy formed what was then the Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights, and then changed its name in the 1990s to reflect a broader portfolio of issues that the organization was working on to the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, which is our name today. What led you to join this national organization? I was at Yale Divinity School for Seminary, and I was feeling a little bit disillusioned with the academy at the time because I really was hungry for more practical, skill-based education. And I wasn't getting that in the classroom at the time. So RCRC came to campus and provided training for students on how to accompany someone as they made a reproductive decision or experienced a reproductive loss. And I was so taken with these trainings because I felt like this is something that I can actually do and provide for someone that's going to help them through a really difficult moment in their lives. And I was so moved by the training. And I also felt that it was important for me to actually experience what it was like to go inside an abortion clinic because I had never been inside of one. There was one directly across the street from the seminary campus. So I'd walked past it, driven past it. I had often seen protesters outside who identified as Christian, who were the ones harassing patients and the providers and the staff. And so I called the clinic and asked if I could come. And I had this profound experience that I was not expecting both within the clinic, but also outside of it, because I entered into the clinic from the street. And the protesters assumed that I was a patient there to have an abortion. And I had never felt what it would feel like to be seen as someone going into a clinic to have an abortion. And it was so unsettling to have the harassment directed at me. And I also discovered my own internalized abortion stigma because there was part of me that didn't want to be seen as someone who is there to have an abortion. And I really had to struggle with why that mattered to me. And I realized that even though I was pro-choice, I still had some judgments about people who had abortions. You're describing this um, tension that you felt. You were you identified as pro-choice. You're, pro- you're there to provide pastoral and spiritual support for someone going through a difficult time. Mm-hmm. And you're being really honest with us here about the fact that you yourself had to wrestle, it sounds like, with some internal feelings that were associated with the stigma of seeking an abortion. Share with us what you learned about yourself and how you look at where those attitudes and feelings and assumptions came from. This is something that I talk a lot about in a complicated choice. I want to be really open and honest about my own experience because I hope it's an invitation for all of us to do this internal work. For a long time, I felt shame that I had that judgment. And I think it's actually just a product of living in these times in which the anti-abortion movement has been so insidious in their messages that abortion is murder that abortion is wrong, that it's immoral, that is something to be um, ashamed of 
or to be avoided at all costs. And I honestly think that all of us have internalized judgments and stigma about abortion. And it's not something for us to feel ashamed about. It's something for us to identify and be honest with ourselves and start talking about so that we can figure out where it comes from and decide if we want to continue believing those things or if we want to replace those beliefs with something different. That abortion stigma functions to keep us quiet. And so I hope that in my book and in conversations like this, modeling a, a kind of openness that allows us to have the space to dig into our discomfort, to think critically about what is it about abortion that makes me uncomfortable and how do we move into a place of compassion for people when we once held judgments about why they might make a decision like that that we don't necessarily understand. You know, as you're talking, it reminds me of another conversation that's been happening in our culture about um, unspoken attitudes about race. Mm-hmm. Yes. Tell me, tell me what you're thinking. I absolutely agree with you. And I talk about this in the book that internalized abortion stigma is very similar to internalized racism and sexism and heterosexism. It is. It is not our individual fault that we have these things, but it is our responsibility to identify them, see how they are functioning with us and work every single day to dismantle them. You know, I identify as a white woman and I have had to do a lot of work and continue to do a lot of work about what it means to be white. What is whiteness and have uncomfortable conversations with other white people about that. And I think there's a similar discomfort with talking about abortion because we lack practice. And I think so much of it is just allowing ourselves to give ourselves the grace to make mistakes as we do this, because that's how we learn. It's not something for us to feel ashamed about. It might feel bad to us that we have this internalized stigma, racism, sexism. So let's sit with that and then say there's something that we can do about it. We don't have to stay in this place, but we have to do the work. And I would say the dismantling of all of these things is ongoing because, again, we live in a culture that is giving us all of these anti-Black messages and anti-woman messages and anti-abortion messages all of the time. And they do impact us, even if we have a particular political or theological belief, those messages they, they do sink in. And I think we have to allow ourselves the grace to say, yeah, I'm impacted by that. And what am I going to do about it in response? As you're, mm-hmm. as you're talking and as I'm thinking about the, the religious diversity and the fact that mm-hmm. different faith traditions have diversity within them. So there's, you know, mm-hmm. varying theological perspectives and points of view on sexuality, on gender. And on abortion. And I am curious, how today does the organization facilitate that awareness or those conversations? Or are we beyond it? Is that even relevant today? I think it's incredibly relevant because for so long, we've only really heard one religious voice on this issue And that is the anti-abortion Christian stance on this. And again, as you said, not all, not all Christians believe the same things, but the, the narrative that we've heard 
is that the Bible says abortion is wrong, that abortion is murder, that if you are a Christian, you must be anti-abortion or pro-life. So I think it's really important to unpack how we got there. How did that become the dominant message when really the the Christian scriptures in particular really say nothing about abortion? How did we get to this place that it's almost, you can almost just say, you know, Christians are pro-life with, without any explanation. It's almost just understood. It's a given um, that people don't necessarily challenge. And I think, you know, folks like me are saying, wait a second, there's a much more nuanced conversation here. We have to talk about our history. We have to talk about there's never really been theological agreement even among Catholics. So one of the things that we have been working on over the last few years, I would encourage listeners to check out is we've created our religion and repro learning center. And there are webinars and and courses that dive into how abortion is understood in different faith traditions to really get a sense of that theological diversity that you were talking about. Because I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't talk precisely about faith and abortion. Those things get conflated and there there's so much diversity as you were saying often people say you know religious people are anti-abortion they're talking about a very particular group definitely not all religious people and i personally have learned so much from working with my jewish colleagues because for them access to abortion is imperative for them to live out their faith abortion is called for in certain circumstances in alignment with their religious values so to to make abortion illegal is actually an infringement on their religious liberty and freedom. You know, as you bring up your spiritual resources and the work that you do with leaders of other faith traditions, including in the Jewish community, how interfaith alliances and organizations and efforts that have been underway for the last 30 years in this country as the country's become diverse how has that impacted this understanding about the nuances and the complicated points of view or the different points of view within religious traditions? From my perspective, what I see is that there might not be a theological agreement on the particularities of specific social issues, but there are these common themes that we see in many, many faith traditions about caring for each other, um, for ensuring that everyone has access to the resources that they need to flourish, um, justice, compassion, love, that these ought to be our guiding principles in the way that we are in community with each other so we can have theological disagreements but also respect that we live in a religiously pluralistic society. And so our laws and policies need to reflect that diversity. Um, what we are seeing now in terms of anti-abortion legislation feels very theocratic. It feels like there's one particular understanding of abortion that is being imposed on everyone else rather than respecting that there are people who hold different kinds of viewpoints on this issue, and there are people of no faith, and their constitutional rights should be protected as well. As I was saying before, I think 
being in an interfaith movement has really helped me understand religious freedom and religious liberty in a different kind of way that it, it is about the beauty of living in a pluralistic society and learning from other faith traditions and making sure that every person of every faith, especially if they're of a minority faith tradition, is able to live into their spiritual and religious values without any barriers. And lacking access to abortion is is a violation of religious liberty for many people. talking with Reverend Katie Zay of the Religious Coalition of Reproductive Choice. She's also the author of A Complicated Choice, Making Space for Grief and Healing in the Pro-Choice Movement. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. As we get back to the conversation, Zay describes how the organization is looking ahead as the court may overturn the 49-year precedent. Roe v. Wade. There has been a leak at the Supreme Court reported by Politico and now by media outlets around the world about what's happening here. How is your organization responding? And what are you planning? We have been preparing for this moment for a long time. It's not surprising I would say it's perhaps unsettling to read the words on the screen, but in terms of the the impact and knowing that this decision was coming has been in our collective consciousness for a long, long time. We have seen a chipping away and a smashing of access to abortion for decades. I mean, really, Roe versus Wade was never sufficient to make sure that everyone who needed access to abortion could get it. And we've seen, you know, an increased number of anti-abortion pieces of legislation. We've seen stacking of the court at every level preparing for this moment. And so there is definitely emotion right now for all of us. And we've been preparing for it for, for a long time. So um, I shared that we want to continue to be a place where people can get accurate and thorough information about these issues so that we're we're educated when we speak about them, you know, whether it's with an individual person making a reproductive decision or we're talking about it in our congregations or we're talking about it in the public square. We want to make sure that we're equipping activists and faith leaders and people of faith with the knowledge that they need to to talk about this in a way that feels good to them and in alignment with their faith values. We also want to make sure that people who need abortion care have all the support that they need. One of the projects that we launched earlier this year with our Mississippi partner, Faith in Women, is a resource called Abortions Welcome. And it's specifically for people who are going through medication abortion, which often happens in isolation. And we know that people have very particular spiritual needs around this this process. And so we've created a site for people where they can get accurate medical and legal support, as well as um, counseling support if they need to talk to somebody, but also the spiritual resources that they might need to help them cope with what they're going through. And we will continue as, as this emerges, right? We're not exactly sure 
what the impact is going to be, but we will always make sure that people who need access to abortion care can get it. That is our legacy and that will be our future as well. For people who don't have the financial wherewithal to take two weeks off work to travel to another state or right. to um, secure childcare and, and, and ensure they have the healthcare access that they need, these restrictions tend to have a high impact on a very select group of people. How is your organization responding to that? I, I think it's really important to note that this isn't anything new. There are states that only have one abortion provider in states like Mississippi, and people have often had to travel long distances to get to a provider even before this year. We're just seeing the scale. Looking back to the time of Roe, one of the first pieces of legislation that came down was the Hyde Amendment, which prevents any federal funding from being used for abortion care, except for in these, you know, few exceptions. And who does that impact? People who are on Medicaid. And we know that abortion procedures become more expensive the longer that you wait to have one. So for folks who are just getting by, who not only have to get the money together to pay for their abortion, but also now have the added expense of transportation and childcare, losing work, there's almost a snowball effect in terms of the cost and then the delay. And that means that some people simply are not going to get access to the care that they need. And that is an injustice. Um, and this is something that we have been talking about for a long time at our organization, that who is most impacted by these policies? People who kind of exist at these interlocking systems of oppression, of classism and sexism and racism. And those same folks have some of the worst birth outcomes, right? We know that maternal mortality impacts Black women at a rate three times higher than their white counterparts, regardless of education and economic status. All of these things are interconnected. You know, we started the conversation talking about the history of that clergy network. That included clergy playing an active role in helping women find places to have um, medical procedures that mm -hmm. would be safe. Can you describe for me how faith leaders in institutions, denominations, or conferences that represent the voice of the faithful in particular traditions, are they engaging in this um, conversation? Are they engaging in addressing the challenge that congregants may face? We have moved from national strategies or grass top strategies to more grassroots movement. I see a lot of leadership right now, not just among faith leaders, but among reproductive justice organizations, that it really is about what is going on in my local community. What is, what is my particular community need? What is What do people in my state need? And that leadership is coming from folks on the ground rather than there being a national agenda that might not pay attention to the nuances because there are different needs for people depending on where they live. So there's got to be this balance of communication that's happening from the ground to national and vice versa. Uh, and I think that that's something that's a beautiful opportunity in this moment for us to be listening to 
The activists who've been preparing for this moment on the ground for a long time and asking them, what is it that they need? I think the role of clergy and faith leaders and people of faith is important. And I think it's going to look different from the way that it did in the 1960s and the 1970s. And that's okay. Uh, it's going to require some really deep listening and ongoing discernment about what is the unique contribution that faith leaders can make in this moment to make sure that everyone who needs care gets it. I think it is helpful to go back and think about the history and, and what the strength of the coalition really was in those denominational partnerships where there was a lot of strength and a lot of resources and a lot of support among the people of those denominations for access to abortion care and reproductive health care more generally. And I think as the participation in mainline denominations has declined over the last several decades, and as the anti-abortion movement has fortified itself and become stronger and has created pressure within these denominations themselves, we've seen a decline in support and participation from denominational groups around these issues. There are exceptions, of course, but I would say overall as a trend, there's been a real reticence to engage on this issue. That might change now. I'm, I feel like this is one of those moments when People took Roe versus Wade for granted. It was a pillar of our society. And, and I think there were folks who were really in denial that it might be taken away. And now that that threat is imminent, I feel like this might be a moment that people who have been sitting by silent will be motivated to reengage because I think we're going to be seeing the impact that this has on our communities in ways that we haven't seen since the 1960s and 1970s. We need everyone who's willing and able to participate in this because the work to undo the damage being done and to heal what is happening is going to be decades in the making. It's been decades in the making to get here, and it'll be decades in the making to get us out. And we need as many partners as we can. When I was uh, at the Supreme Court on December 1st, I first mm-hmm. thing I saw it were um, groups of people praying quietly, holding their rosaries or kneeling or gathered together, holding hands or laying hands upon each other and quietly um, praying, contemplating, meditating. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and when they spoke to media, were very quick to share that their engagement was informed by their beliefs. While I was there, it was much harder to find activists who were engaged on the steps of the court. I did find some, but it was really mm-hmm. hard to find them, find folks who were comfortable or motivated by their deeply held beliefs, by their faith. There is, um, there is a difference in the way faith is invoked in this debate. Do you think that's going to change? As I was saying earlier, I I do hope that this is a moment when people are no longer willing to remain silent because we know based on polling that the religious position of the anti-abortion movement is overrepresented in terms of how people feel about the overturning of Roe. We know that a majority 
of people living in the United States and people of faith more generally do not believe that Roe should be overturned. So we know that. So what's the difference? I think it's that people who hold a pro-choice position who are people of faith have not had spaces and opportunities to talk about this in ways that they feel confident in talking about their faith. I think there's been like a silencing and people have compartmentalized, you know, I'm a person of faith over here and I'm a voter over here. I grew up in a, a very conservative white evangelical church. There is a training that happens from the time that you are a young person in these social beliefs and how to talk about them. And you are pushed to practice them. It is embedded in that religious upbringing. And I think for more progressive faith traditions, that's not always true. And so I think we, you know, as the, as RCRC and others are trying to provide that, that training, that, um, that practice ground for how to do this and giving people the support that they need to speak out and feel held by their community. We want to make sure that people feel safe and supported when they're willing to be bold and to speak out about an issue that is so divisive um, and loaded like abortion is. And so my, my hope is that as people are feeling motivated to get involved, maybe for the first time or for the first time in a long time, that we can provide the community, the support, the tools, the resources, the messages, the spiritual fortification that they need to really be much, much bolder. Because again, there's an over-representation of an extreme religious view that is not held by the majority of people of faith in this country. And we need to do a better job of amplifying those voices so that we can show that religious diversity that exists around this issue and other things. We've talked a lot about abortion as an explanation of the stigma, but how much of this has to do with discomfort even today within faith communities to talk about sexuality? (laughs) Again, going back to my own religious upbringing, growing up white and evangelical, Um, I grew up in the height of purity culture and having a female body. I, I was told that just kind of existing within a female body was somehow sinful. What is just existing? What is purity culture for someone who may not be familiar with that or come from a different tradition that is not familiar with that movement? Of course, purity culture is really about sexual abstinence. And more than that, it's really about the control of our sexual lives. So a big pillar of that is the idea that we're not to engage in any sexual activity with anyone else until we are married. And more than that, it also has to do with how we dress, how we talk, how we um, engage in romantic relationships. And if you don't abide by the very strict rules of abstaining from sex, or, you know, dressing modestly, um, you're considered unclean. I mean, it's a very much a fear and control based and gender roles based way of training young people to be afraid of their bodies, afraid of their sexuality, um, and to encourage young people to get, to get married before they're ready to. Um, and I've seen the impact of that in my own life and in the life of my friends I grew up with who entered into marriages when they were too young or became abusive and then felt like it was their fault because of the messages that they'd gotten that if they followed the rules, then then they were destined for a blessed marriage. So again, when I look at all of it, it really is about the control of our bodies. So the idea of separating our sexuality from reproduction is something that continues to make 
um, some religious people very uncomfortable. How are you going into this this weekend? I think that it's so important in these moments for us to honor the emotional impact that these kinds of events cause for us. As an activist, it can be really tempting to immediately move into a response or even a reaction to things like this. But when I think about my own calling to do this work, which I believe is my life's work, I know that it is critical for me to tend to my own well-being in these moments um, and to tend to my community and care for each other. And so as I'm going into this weekend, I'm allowing myself to to feel my own feelings and also to remember all of the people who are going to be impacted by this decision and whose mental health will be compromised as a result. I got into this work because I was accompanying people through their abortion procedures. I didn't talk about this at the beginning, but when I went inside the clinic, my role was to stand beside people through their procedures and hold their hands and hold pastoral presence for them. And that was a profound moment of experiencing the sacred in a way that I have never experienced since. And it is what continues to drive me to do this work because it is always about the people who are impacted. Abortion is not abstract. It always happens within a person's full life. And so as I'm going into this weekend, I am honoring my emotions. I am centering those who are going to be most impacted. And I am discerning how I can best show up and how my organization can best show up in these times. I know that we have an important role to play. I know that we are one among many partners who are going to be doing this work. And um, I just am asking the divine for clarity and wisdom about how to move forward um, in these times. And I do hold an existential hope that as, as difficult as this is, and there will be a lot of suffering. i Make no mistake about that. This is also an opportunity for us to imagine a reality that we have not yet seen in which every person has access to the resources that they need to fully flourish in their humanity and their in their bodies and with their families and in their communities. And so I'm holding on to that while I hold on to the incredibly difficult work ahead of us to get there. Reverend Katie Zay is an ordained Baptist minister and the CEO of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Coming up after the break, my conversation with Alan Parker. He's a lawyer and the founder of the Justice Foundation, a conservative Christian legal organization working to overturn Roe v. Wade. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after the break. friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. 
We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. Earlier in the program, we heard from Reverend Katie Zay. She was detailing how stories of grief and healing were central to her book, A Complicated Choice. And Zay describes how sharing stories can be cathartic, empowering, and help confront the stigma around abortion care. In Reverend Zay's ministry, providing spiritual resources to support the pro-choice movement is central to her work. Just like Reverend Zay, lawyer Alan Parker sees stories of women who've had abortions as central to his work, which he also feels is a form of ministry. Parker founded a conservative Christian legal advocacy law firm. His focus overturning Roe v. Wade and gathering legal petitions to submit to the court from women, detailing their experience after having an abortion. That became central to his litigation strategy. When I spoke to Parker by phone from his office in San Antonio, he was celebrating because he believes the high court is now listening to the women he represents. So I understand that yesterday was a big day for you at the Justice Foundation. Well, it's pretty exciting when even if it's leaked information, you get word that the Supreme Court of the United States has a majority that is about to reverse Roe v. Wade. That's good news for us and I believe for America and even women who might be considering abortion in the future. Tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work of the Justice Foundation. Since about 2000, I've been working to reverse Roe v. Wade. I was blessed to represent Norma McCorvey, who was the Roe of Roe v. Wade, and Sandra Kano, who was the Doe of Doe v. Bolton. And I was blessed to represent them in their legal efforts to reverse the two cases that brought abortion to America. In 2000, both of those women asked us to file motions at the Supreme Court to reverse their cases. And the court did not hear either of those cases at that time. But we have continued to collect the testimony of women hurt by abortion, 
Uh, that's what the Lord told me to do, to collect women's testimonies, go back to the court. In 2007, the court heard uh, a brief on behalf of 180 women hurt by abortion that we filed. And the court said for the first time that some women come to regret aborting the infant life they once created and sustained. So we knew the court was impacted by the testimonies. In 2017, Melinda Tebow, the founder of the Moral Outcry Petition, asked us to take a petition to the Supreme Court. And in this Dobbs case, acting on her behalf on about 539,108 signers of the Moral Outcry Petition, and 2,249 women hurt by abortion. So our big arguments in the case are abortion is a crime against humanity. It hurts women. It's killing a human being. And there's a better alternative today called the safe haven laws under which no woman has to parent a child if she doesn't want to. In all 50 states, if Roe is reversed, no woman anywhere in America, even California or liberal states, will have to parent a child. She can safely drop off her child at a hospital or fire station within a few set designated time after birth at no cost, unlike abortion, and the state will take her baby and relieve her from 18 years of obligation of parenting. The draft of the majority that was leaked really points not just to and describes Roe v. Wade as equivalent to an egregious wrong similar to that of um, Plessy v. Ferguson, you know. uh, And that was one of the arguments we were making in our brief, that abortion is a crime against humanity, like Dred Scott, the slavery case, and like Plessy v. Ferguson, where the Supreme Court said to African Americans as a group, you're an inferior race. You're not going to get equal protection, you're going to get separate but equal. And we remind the court of Brown v. Board of Education, one of the court's greatest cases, where they didn't create new rights. They didn't put equal protection in the Constitution. No, they reversed a 58-year-old precedent of the Supreme Court called Plessy versus Ferguson. So what everybody thinks is one of the greatest cases, reversed a 58-year-old case, Rose only 49 years old. The abortionists in front of the Supreme Court on the day of oral argument were yelling, abortion forever, abortion forever. And that's what the segregationists said just before it came down. And abortion is coming down also. What do you say to opponents who say that this decision and this draft reflects the codification of one religious theological viewpoint about when life begins. There's a right to life in the Constitution. I think this decision does not really go far enough. It simply says there's no right to abortion in the Constitution. Well, that is absolutely true. It never was. So we want to live in a country where the people have the right to decide what our laws are going to be. What do you say to those who say that the harm caused by forcing women to carry uh, a pregnancy to term is injurious and traumatic and unstudied, that that in and of itself is um, depriving women of the liberty over their bodies? It's not the woman's body. If you take DNA from the woman's arm, and DNA from the baby in the womb, 
send it anonymously to a DNA lab. They'll send you back a report and say, these are two separate human beings. We're going to say you can't kill a human being. That's the only option that's being taken off the table. Women aren't being forced to be pregnant. They can use contraceptives. That's still perfectly permissible. There's a difference between preventing a human being from coming into life and killing a human being once they're there. The argument that human life begins at conception is an argument that is debated among philosophers, theologians, even people within the same religious tradition. How do you respond to those arguments? We don't go into religion. Reversing Roe v. Wade depends only on science. Science shows when human chromosomes reach 46, when the sperm and egg are are joined together, a human is created. Alan Parker is the president of the Justice Foundation. He also runs The Moral Outcry, a ministry of the Justice Foundation that provides free legal representation to Melinda Thibault and assistance to those who sign her nationwide petition asking the Supreme Court to reverse its abortion cases. That's all for this week's show. If you have thoughts or reflections that you'd like to share, I want to hear from you. Send me an email to amber at interfaithradio.org. This week's producer was Kevin McCarthy. Sounds from Audio Binger, Blue Dot Sessions, and MC Yogi. And a special thanks to our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler. I'm your host and executive producer, Ambreen Khan. To learn more about us, visit interfaithradio.org. Wherever you are, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.